This is episode number 336, Peak Performance Aging with New York Times bestselling author Stephen Kotler. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. It's really clear from all the research that mindset matters, right? How you feel about growing older? How do you feel about the second half of your life? There's copious research. This is mindset towards aging, a positive mindset towards aging. I'm excited about the second half of my life and, and what it holds. Produces an extra seven and a half years of health and longevity. So it's literally like directly tied to lifespan. We get to live long. In fact, it is better to have a positive mindset towards aging than it is to quit smoking or like lose weight if you're obese for your long-term health. It's that important. I've got news for you. High performance is not limited to being young. Yes, you can be a peak performer as you age. And that has been a question that has come up a lot on my audience on social media, especially on Facebook and on Instagram. People have asked me questions like, well, what should my expectations be like when I'm past my prime? How should I expect to perform when I'm past my prime? And I was really excited whenever I heard about Stephen Kotler's new book, NAR Country. Who is Stephen Kotler? Well, you might have heard of the book, The Art of Impossible, or you might have heard of The Rise of Superman, but he is the author of 11 bestsellers out of 14 books. And that is quite the accomplishment because it's hard to be a bestseller with even one book. And he has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes that have been translated into 50 languages and has appeared in over 100 publications, including the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, Wall Street Journal, Time, and the Harvard Business Review. Stephen is also the executive director at the Flow Research Collective, where they have lots of different courses on how to access flow in all of your challenges. And I highly recommend you check out the Flow Research Collective if you're interested in flow. Before I tell you about today's episode and peak performance aging, I wanted to tell you about our podcast sponsor, Prevenex. Prevenex is a supplement company that has the highest quality and potency of ingredients, and they are pharmaceutical grade. There's a lot of stuff that goes into supplements, and the industry is highly unregulated. So I've always been a little bit wary when it comes to taking supplements, and that's why I trust Prevenex, because I've looked at the data, and I have personally felt the benefits, especially with the multivitamin that I take every single day. And when I switched to Prevenix, I noticed that I had more energy. And that is a big thing to say because I have two young children that wake up sometimes at five o'clock in the morning. I am a professional athlete. I run a business and there is never a dull moment in my life. So having the support of the multivitamin and having that extra energy that I need in order, order to get everything done has been a game changer for me. Another one you can check out is the Joint Health Plus. And a lot of us are athletes, whether you're a runner, whether you're a cyclist, a lot of us have had some kind of joint pain. The active ingredient has been proven to reduce joint pain and stiffness in just seven to 10 days. And it's actually been proven in a double-blind placebo-controlled study. So check out Joint Health Plus if you want to add that to your cart as well. I encourage you to try out some of these products because they offer a 30-day money-back guarantee, no questions asked. 
So there is no risk and all benefit to trying out some of their products. You can go to Prevenex.com, that is P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code SONYA15 to save 15% on your first purchase. All right, so back to Stephen Kotler's book, Nar Country, and our podcast episode that we recorded. Many people use reasons like, I am too old to start, or I won't be able to learn it, or simply, I'm too old, I'll get hurt, to avoid trying something new. And that especially goes for action sports. But Stephen Kotler says it's especially important to continue using mental and physical abilities as we age. Many people think aging is a long, slow rot, but research shows that our physical and mental skills do not have to decline and rot over time. Our mindset towards aging is a key player in peak performance aging. And in fact, I've heard this study quoted multiple times in just the last couple of weeks, but your mindset towards aging can actually improve and increase your lifespan by seven and a half years. Some other interesting tidbits you might be curious about with aging is that old dogs can indeed learn new tricks. That means that older humans are better at learning certain skills than their younger counterparts. And a lot of skills like strength and stamina and abilities that were once believed to decline with age are now seen as use it or lose it skills. So it's important to continue focusing on that growth and to continue learning new things. There's also beneficial brain changes that occur in the second half of our lives, which, if properly cultivated, can unlock new levels of intelligence, wisdom, creativity, and empathy. And as I turn 40 this year, I'm really interested in peak performance aging and living it myself. If you're interested in performance and well-being, you probably would enjoy my weekly newsletter that you can get at sonyalooney.com newsletter, where I write an article on something that has caught my attention that I wanted to go deeper into the research. And I also give you the podcast episode of the week and a question to ponder. Another way you can connect with my work is checking out the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. And this is a mental toughness training for athletes and professionals that you can find at sonyalooney.com under how I can help, or you can go to moxieandgrit.com and find it there. And that is M-O-X-Y and grit.com. I also offer health and mental performance coaching. So whether you are an executive, whether you're an athlete, whether you are a person who wants to close the gap from where you are now to where you know you can be, coaching can really help. So I'm here to help you on that journey. You can go to sonyalooney.com and contact me, or you can contact me on any of the social medias. I am also there if you are interested in working with me. I'd love to meet you. All right, let's get into today's awesome episode with Stephen Kotler. Stephen Kotler, welcome to the show. It is so good to be with you. It's fun to get to talk to you in person because I've been reading your work. The first book I read of yours, which by far was not your very first book that you wrote, but I read The Rise of Superman. Then I read The Art of Impossible. And then I got the sneak peek at Nar Country. So it's it's an honor to talk to you. Oh, that's great. Thank you. So I love how you are redefining what it means to age. And I think that our culture has a negative connotation, even when we hear the word older. And people always want to be younger. People will see a picture of somebody and say, well, you don't even look your age as if, you know, it's a bad thing to get older. So I just wanted to ask you, as you put lots of thought and effort into this, what does it mean to you to grow older? That's an interesting question. Wow. So this is not a good answer, but this is what I think about the most is that one, growing older has actually meant unlearning the erroneous belief that life was going to get easier. 
I think my whole life I kept thinking the older I get, I'm going to get better at this. It's going to get easier. It's going to get easier. And it, it doesn't. And some of it is because I keep upping the challenge level because I like doing that. And some of it is it's just hard here and it's hard here for everyone. And it's hard here for everyone most of the time. And the second part is while it hasn't gotten easier, it has gotten immensely more meaningful. And so I, I don't know what getting older means to me other than it means that I feel like I'm living more intentionally, more exactly on, on purpose and that the things I do mean so much more because I've, I've targeted in on exactly sort of who I am and what I, you know, what I can add to the conversation. And I, and I just try to do those things. That's my answer. I don't know if it's a good one, but <laughs> nobody's asked me that before. So I think that's my answer. All right. Well, I like it. And as you know, answers can always evolve. And I, I like the answer. I think that that's such a good point that we think things are going to get easier. Financially, things are going to get easier. Or, or I'm just, I get to just relax and retire, quote, retire and go drive around in my motorhome. And my husband and I talk about retirement all the time, how it, well, you know, the previous story about retirement, how people like, I think it was in Germany. Yeah. Do you want to tell worst them? thing you can yeah. do? Period. Like single worst thing you could do as we age is retire. It's so it's unbelievably dangerous from a health and longevity standpoint. And the yeah. and the research is really clear on that. Like I'm not the only person who says it, but you know, there are a lot of people that are like the best eight peak performance aging advice you can give is don't retire. Yeah. I don't remember the exact story, so people who know it will can correct me, but the retirement age of sixty-five was set or sixty-two or whatever the age is set in the past because people's lifespan was two years past retirement age. And as we've gotten older um, and, and able to live longer, people retire at 60 something and then they live another 20 years or more. It's incredible. This is footnoted, I think, in our country. And it's definitely in the class we built around it. So what is interesting about this story is I always say that like we're in our country where the peak performance aging starts is with this. The old idea about aging is the long, slow rot theory, right? It's our mental skills, our physical skills decline over time. There's nothing we can do to stop the slide. That story starts really with Freud in 1904. I think he says something crazy that anybody over the age of 50, their brain is so decayed, they can no longer do psychotherapy and they're uneducable. So the idea that old dogs can't learn new tricks, it's all Freud. And he was like 49 and terrified of turning 50. I should also point out that Freud did some of his most famous work in his 60s. So it even wasn't true for him. But by the time you get to 1950, and this is your point, if you look at the memo Harry Truman sends out about Social Security that sets the retirement age and does all that, the memo itself establishes it's to all these leaders who are going to come together to discuss Social Security. And it starts with four things we have to acknowledge about older people that are not widely known. Thing one is older people are people too, and they actually have the same feelings as all other. I mean, it's you look at what they were thinking of who we were over the age of 50, and it's it's actually crazy. It's not like you look at you like, what? People were making decisions from, from this knowledge base? It makes almost no sense. Yeah. And your book and your work is changing how we view this knowledge base. So in our country, it's fantastic because you outline what the process looks like of learning a skill. And I want to hear about that skill because a lot of people, it's going to blow a lot of people's minds. But the process of what that looks like and what your expectations are of yourself can really change. So can you tell us about the book and why you decided to write it? Yes. I'll tell you why I decided to write it at the end. Let me just okay. walk you through what the book is. So 
we talked about a second ago, the long, slow rot theory. That theory started breaking apart in the 1990s in a bunch of different fields. Short version of what we learned is that all the skills we used to think declined over time, and there's nothing we can do to stop this eye. turns out they're all user to lose it skills. If you never stop using these skills, you can hang on to them, even advance them far later in life than anything thought possible. That's a bunch of research and research papers and cool experiments out in the world, in the wild, but I haven't seen anything that like made me go, okay, this is exactly true. But for a bunch of reasons that we'll come back to in a second, I decided at age 53 that I could take a bunch of ideas out of flow science, which is my field, out of embodied cognition, exercise physiology, bunch of bunch of things that were at the cutting edge. And if I combine them correctly, I should be able to teach myself how to park ski at age 53. Now, park skiing, as most of you listeners probably know, is the discipline in skiing that involves doing tricks off jumps, off boxes, rails, wall rides. It is very acrobatic. It's very dangerous. And for 12 to 15 different biological reasons, it's considered really difficult to learn if you're over the age of 30. By the time you get to 40 and 50, you're, most people thought I was insane. So what I did is I made a list of tricks that would go from like zero to intermediate. It was 20 tricks. I figured when I started, if it took me five years, that would probably be great. Like that would, you know, okay, cool. And we can talk about what I did and how I did it later. But like what happened is I got everything on the trick list and there were like four or five other goals in a single season. It was astounding. Like I went farther. I learned this faster than I learned anything. And you, then you have to know I'm a bad athlete. I am not. A, I come from a family of gifted athletes. I know what that looks like up close. I am not that. I'm the exact opposite. I was the guy who was a journalist covering the professional athletes. So like I saw really clearly all the time for decades, there's a difference. I'm not a naturally gifted athlete. I've also broken a ton of bones. Um, so my body, uh, my body is pretty beat up along the way and I'm really busy. So like I'm a bad athlete in a broken body with a busy schedule. And I set out to do this quest that would take five years and took a season. That was amazing. My ski partner, Ryan Wicks, who was a former sponsored athlete, a park skier who retired, had a family, raised three kids, got injured, you know, walked away. He decided to come back into the sport with me and started applying the protocol. And he went farther than he's ever gone faster. And by the time it was done, we thought, wow, this is the most amazing thing ever. This thing is working really, really well, but there's no way it could work for anybody. It's like, we got lucky. It's just us. And at the Flow Research Collective, which is the organization that I run, you know, we, everybody brings data. We don't, we don't, we, and we don't believe we have a cardinal rule that like what works for me will probably not work for you. And we look for things that work for everyone all the time. So we ran an experiment. We took 17 older adults, ages 30 to 68, used the exact same protocol, four days on the mountain. And the results in four days was like, they got farther faster than like, even I, like it was astounding. Anybody can go to narcountry.com and watch the peak performance aging experiment video. Like, don't take my word for it. Go watch the videos of, of, of what people ended up doing. We measured and tracked everything we possibly could. The results were staggering. We saw like a 26.5% improvement in park skiing ability. And these are these were mostly in that study group, intermediate skiers. They weren't expert skiers. They were mostly intermediates. And we used the same FIS judging criteria, we videotaped everything. And that's how we analyzed, we built a judging panel. And you know, you could read the white paper on the website too. But so that's the story told in the book. It 
it's applied peak performance, as you pointed out, and applied peak performance agent. You sort of done as an adventure story, which makes it a little friendlier, I think, for people. And the actual reason I wrote it is flow is my core field. The godfather of flow psychology is Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. And Mike died during COVID. The last conversation we had was a couple months before COVID, I would say. And it was a conversation about Mike was a mountaineer and a rock climber. And I asked him about the influence that played in his flow research. And and it just, I don't know, there's like a long pause in the conversation, like really long. And Mike's in his 80s. He's had a stroke. And I was like, oh, my God, is it like, is this a brain thing? It's like, and finally, he says, Stephen, you got to be careful. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, I got to be careful. Thinking, has he lost his mind? And he's like, you do something your whole life for flow. And then you get to be my age and forget about climbing mountains. I can barely get out of bed. Have a backup plan. Be careful. And my entire, like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life was I'm a big mountain skier. I was going to charge big lines and big lines and big lines. And his point was, you're going to get to a point where that's not possible or um, you're not, you know, and you have other entrances into flow. If you're a flow junkie, if this is really important to you, you have to have a backup plan. And so I knew learning how to parse was going to be dangerous, but I also knew that by the time I got to intermediate, I could filter out a bunch of the danger because you stop making all the, the dumb mistakes. Then you make intentional mistakes, but most of the dumb mistakes go away. And I just knew I could have a use being able to creatively interpret the mountain in a million different ways because I learned how to move my body in new ways would give me so much more access to flow in actually a much safer way uh, than growing older. And in fact, it, the funniest thing about it is as an, a weird side note and result, I noticed that this season, so three seasons in, we had an early snowfall and they opened up North Star and none of the expert runs were open. None of the intermediate runs were open. There were like a four or five beginner runs Nobody who knew how to ski was on the mountain, but I was there with Ryan and our crew because we could take a beginner run, take four or five side hits, turn it into a mini slope style course and have a blast. And everybody else was bitching about no snow and it's not <laughs> open yet. And we are having an absolute blast. We're like two year olds in a playground. And that was what I, that was the goal. That was what I started set out to do. And ultimately the beginning is I wanted to be able to creatively interpret the mountain because creativity, that kind of pattern recognition is a flow trigger. Um, it's, a, it's a safer way to get into flow than, you know, pushing the envelope all the time and taking huge risks. I will say that the end result of, of me learning how to park ski is I'm a much better big mountain skier as well, because I can see all kinds of stuff I never could see before. But that's the experiment that was in our country. And it, I think it's the most radical experiment in peak performance aging anybody's ever run, though a woman named Ellen Langer at Harvard has definitely run some really crazy ones as well. She's sort of a hero of mine as and for her experiments on peak performance aging. But the most important thing to come out of it, and then I'll shut up and let you ask your next question, is it's really clear from all the research that mindset matters, right? How you feel about growing older? How do you feel about the second half of your life? There's copious research. This is mindset towards aging, a positive mindset towards aging. I'm excited about the second half of my life and, and what it holds. Produces an extra seven and a half years of health and longevity. So it's literally like directly tied to lifespan. We get to live long. In fact, it is better to have a positive mindset towards aging than it is to quit smoking or like lose weight if you're obese for your long-term health. It's that important. So I think that this kind of NAR country style adventure, like whatever I thought about the second half of my life, you asked me, what do I think about getting older at the start? And this is why I'm saying this. 
it got obliterated by me learning to park ski in a season. Like whatever I, I thought a lot was possible. And I certainly ran the experiment and got great results. But I like whatever else I thought was possible. Like when I learned how to do a nose butter 360 at 53, I was like, okay, that sort of blew everything else out of the water because that shouldn't be possible. And, you know, it turns out it wasn't even that hard. Yeah, I, I'm kind of smiling because Samaiha said, hey, you need to have a backup plan. And most people were probably thinking, you know, learn an instrument or something that isn't a sport. And your backup plan was learning tricks so that you can ski different types of runs, which I think is it's funny and I also think it's audacious. So the thing is, if you look at all the neuroscience and all the science on peak performance aging, if you were to sum it up in a single sentence, it would be... If you want to rock to your drop, you have to, have to, have to. This is not, nothing is non-negotiable. And then we'll define what these terms mean. You have to engage in challenging social and creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play. And dynamic is just a fancy word for all five categories of functional fitness, strength, stamina, uh, balance, agility, and flexibility, right? Dynamic, deliberate play in novel outdoor environments. That's peak performance aging in a single sentence. Which, by the way, is not most people think, well, there's diet, there's this, supplements, I got to take these. No, no. It's about engaging in challenging social creative activities that demand dynamic, deliberate play in novel outdoor environments. It's the single best things you could do. And that's action sports. Dynamic, deliberate play is taking a creative approach to the mountain. And it's, you know, action sports. If you don't, if you're not involved in action sports, you're trying to do this just in the gym and whatever. The World Health Organization is really clear on the physical requirements for peak performance aging. It's 150 to 300 minutes of aerobic, moderate to intense aerobic activity a week, two strength training days, and three balanced agility and flexibility days. That's, if you're a decent athlete, that's two hours in the gym every day. And, or you need action sports to train all that shit at once. The only other substitute that we could find is hiking with a weight vest. Um, in the in the great outdoors, which will hit almost all of them, and then you probably need a yoga routine. Yeah, I mean, you're singing to the choir here when it comes to the joy of action sports, and I think that a lot of people think, "Oh gosh, like I don't like doing cardio." Like I I was on a mountain bike ride once, and someone said, "Yeah, good cardio workout," and it is, but that's not how we're viewing it when we're out there having fun. It's deliberate play where we're learning new skills, and like you said. The skills that you learned made your big mountain skiing more fun because when you break it down into these fundamentals and then learning how to scale them in other scenarios, you get to be more creative. And it was, as an athlete, the craziest thing has been my vision. Like I see a different mountain. I, like from this season, we were at Kirkwood and uh, we skied a line off the top. And like I pulled to the top of the line. I watched the guy ski it ahead of me. I knew it was a big line. And I watched some guys get and he did it wrong. He actually fell. But my brain went, oh, he fell because he didn't lean back right at that millisecond. I saw it. I knew exactly. And, and without even thinking, I pushed off the corners and skied the line. When I, and that was exactly what happened. And when I got to that millisecond, my brain went, oh, this is a spot. Lean back. And I did. And I wrote it out. And I turned around and looked at what I had just skied. And I would have never, like, in, ever. I would have spent the rest of my life not skiing that line. If you had told me that what I actually had just like couldn't believe it. And it was because my vision had changed, how I see the mountain possibilities kinesthetically. Um, that's the coolest part about this. So I want to go back to the mindset towards aging. And 
that makes a significant difference in your expectations of yourself as you age and what you believe that you can do. And I think that the narrative that you're changing and other people like you are changing is that I can do things as I get older. And people put these limits and these barriers like, I'm afraid I'm going to get hurt. I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to learn the skill. It's too late for me to start. So people that have those mental barriers, especially around action sports, because most people as they get older are not thinking they're going to pick up an action sport. How do they rewire their mindset so they stop thinking about these barriers and start focusing on what they need to do? Okay, so let me tell you what we did on the like what we talked about our, our park scheme. We had a protocol. This is the answer to these questions. So one, allostatic load is a big fancy term for the residual effects of trauma, physical or emotional, on the body over time, right? And what it means it and for all of us, especially if you've got an athletic past, you've injured yourself or anything like that, at an unconscious level, not it's not gonna be visible. You're gonna think you're the same athlete you used to be. But the amount of, in, in flow science, we talk about one of flow's most important triggers is the challenge skills balance. Flow follows focus, so it only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here, right now. And the challenge skills balance says we pay the most attention to what we're doing when the challenge slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch but not snap. Metaphorically, this is not real data, but metaphorically, in, 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 we talk about, like, it's usually about a 5% difference. But in adults, anybody who's got fear in their body and, like, trauma shit, it shrinks and it's down to like about 1%, which means you got to go really, really slowly. What we did in park skiing is nobody went out to try to learn a trick. We broke park skiing into eight foundational movements, jumping, crouching, slashing, grinding, a shifty. And there's two others that I'm forgetting right now, three others that I'm forgetting. And then the goal, we taught people these movements and the goal was literally like, we want you to do this to creatively interpret the terrain feature, just move your body in new ways. And we knew that the, that would drop people into flow and the flow would take care of the learning. And we knew that everybody could do a hockey stop because everybody was at least an intermediate snowboarder or skier. And a hockey stop is a slash or a grind, two of our foundational movements, if you just tilt the angle of the body. So we started with a movement pattern that everybody could do 100% of the time with zero fear and 100% execution. And then advance it by one inch go so much slower than even you would like normally go so i said earlier hiking with a weight vest i tell people if you think you can hike for 20 minutes with a 10 pound weight vest on flat ground start by hiking for seven minutes and the next day hike eight and go so so slowly because no matter what else is true older adults take longer to heal than younger adults the caveat here is regenerative medicine, which is stem cells, exosomes, placental matrix, peptides, a handful of these other sort of cutting edge tools. You'll hear about all kinds of stem cell stuff that's not like we can't rebuild organs yet. And we're not really regrowing a lot of stuff from scratch, but bones, tendons and ligaments, the stuff is real. It's expensive. It's not, you know, you can now insurance will cover PRP or seven years ago, that was regenerative medicine and nobody would care for it. And now you can return. And so it's going to get cheaper. But the other thing to know is that like the toolkit is getting better. And while regenerative medicine is very expensive, in my experience with my deductible, and I think it pretty much everybody else's deductible these days with insurance, there's no possible way you can have a surgery without spending eight to fourteen thousand dollars 
which is about what it's going to cost to treat yourself with regenerative medicine. Like, so as far as I can tell, it's now most of these things that we used to require surgery for, we can treat elsewhere. So you can heal some of the nicks and bones. The other thing is, unless you have actual bone density issues, and then there's weight vest hiking is phenomenal for that. You're not as fragile as you think you are. Right. The one thing that is true, though, for, for most people, and this was definitely true for myself and, and most people in our study group, takes longer for if, you, if over a certain point, at a certain point of like beating yourself up, you have to have a much slower warm up. So, like, I learned that I would have to, if I wanted a great day on the mountain, I'd want to walk my dog for 20, 30 minutes, stretch a lot, then go to the mountain and do three or four warm-up laps before I ever tried anything, like really slowly. And I learned that my body lies about fitness readiness. I often wake up feeling like hell, can't move, everything hurts. Oh my God, I'm so old. I feel so old. And then I go for a walk. And I learned this during the experiment because there was a certain number of days I wanted to ski. So I kept going back. I was committed. I go for a walk. I feel a little better. Stretch, I feel a little better. I go to the mountain on a day where I woke up thinking, oh my God, I can barely move. I feel like I'm 95 and I'm going to die tomorrow. And then I would learn three new tricks or ski two of the biggest lines of my life. So that's my body lying about fitness readiness. And what I started to realize is that anxiety, my anxiety about having to go to the mountain and do something scary or could I get hurt or whatever, it felt a lot like the symptoms of age. Like when I was scared, I felt old. And it had nothing to do with my like, fitness it had to do with where my brain was at and when i went to the mountain and did something scary sort of got rid of that anxiety my body felt great and that was consistent throughout yeah there's a lot of things that i heard there the first thing that i heard is that most people will look at the end result of the thing that they want to achieve like some of the tricks that you're talking about maybe in mountain biking they're like i got to go launch off that jump but the launching off the jump or the doing the, of the trick, that's something that comes down the line. They need to break it down into much smaller steps so that they're only taking a 1% to 4% increase in their challenge because it's too overwhelming and, and it is too scary to try and do the end result and think that you have to get there. So the individual process of breaking it down and then having the patience to be committed to that process. Like you said, it, it takes a long time to break something down. It really does. And if you really, especially in mountain biking, because I'm in sort of an avid downhiller, though it does tend to put you in the hospital <laughs> often. But uh, the challenging thing with some of these things is always the same. And that's some mountain biking, skiing is a little bit the same. Equipment's designed to work at a certain speed. And if you don't get it up to that speed, it's a really rough ride. Mm -hmm. And that to me is the challenge with mountain biking. And so you have to like, if you're going to go slow to go fast in mountain biking, you have to really start with super mellow terrain because you have to, the speed is the thing you're going to have to get used to first. I think, uh, I think the same, I think skiing is also that way. Um, even park skiing, there's a certain speed you need to be able to do anything with your body. Um, you know, it's always that what it, uh, there's a line in our country that uh, my buddy Eric Arnold, who uh, was one of the guys I skied with during during it, he was one of my coaches, sort of, he said, you know, the correct speed for a jump is always two miles an hour faster than you want to go. <laughs> so I want to go back to the patience comment because it, it you have to be patient to break something down into trying to just 
make it 1% or 5% harder. How do you keep that patience whenever you're working towards something? And especially if you might have this pre-existing mindset of, I'm too old to do this. I can't learn this. This isn't coming as quickly as I want it. So one, the most important thing for me, at least on this point, and I think everybody might be a little different here. This is a personality kind of question where it's a lot of individuality. But for me, I literally had to set down the shame, the self-consciousness, the like, I am going, there's no, I'm going to, a 53 year old guy trying to learn to park ski. You think it's going to look pretty? I'm like, the only other people in the train park are like chill kids, teenagers, or like parents and their kids, right? Like I'm the only one who looks like me anywhere near the park most of the time. And I'm bad and I'm going to fall down a lot no matter what I do it, I got to do it in public. It's going to happen, you know, and I'm an introvert and I'm self-conscious and I'm all those things. And I don't like being bad in public. And the reason the deliberate play approach matters so much is because it allowed me to set all that down. That's that was. And the the thing about deliberate play that is so important for, for athletes is one of the myths about aging is that there's a motor learning window in early childhood that shuts and after it, it's harder to learn languages or gymnastics or ballet. And like almost all these stories, some of that is true. There is something that, that that does change, but most of it is actually not that your brain changed it's or your body changed. It's how you learn. As kids, we learn by playing. We're not self-conscious about it. We're not judgy about it. We just, and we have no shame, right? It's... Once you have those things, that's what starts making motor learning a lot more difficult was was part of it. And so that was to me, I had to get over the the shame and the self-consciousness. And I also I had to like, I am so competitive with myself and I am so if I can, I can get so pissed if I can't learn something. But I what I learned is. In flow science, we talk about lateralizing. And I talk about this in Rise of Superman when Ian Walsh wanted to surf at Jaws, right? He was one of the first guys to paddle in at Jaws and he had an idea how it could work. But he uh, was terrified because he knew he'd take these horrific wipeouts and he was a bad breath holder. So he moved into an adjacent activity, freehold breath diving, learned freehold breath diving. He lateralized and then he came back into surfing and it was a lot less scary, right? Because he could now hold his breath for five minutes and he knew then lot less scary. So what I would often do is if I was trying to learn something, I was getting stuck and I was getting stuck and getting stuck with lateralize. I would find like, where's a chunk of this thing that I can move in over here and learn doing a totally different thing. And I just didn't judge myself for the failures. Um, And also I will say Sonia more than most importantly, miracles kept happening meaning like i couldn't learn this trick i couldn't learn this trick but then i tried something else you know just to take my mind off it. i'd be like oh let me try this because it's just fun and oh, there's no way i'll be able to do it and i would pull it off the first time so i started to realize there were like there were certain things that like they were working for me and there were other things that were not and it also helped so i slid my very first rail to completion two weeks ago in Whistler in the terrain park. I have been trying to do that for three years. I have hit the ground several hundred times, I would believe a lot. My hips were both so bruised the first season from trying to learn how to slaughter. It took three years for me to actually learn it. 
And some stuff is going to be like that. You know what I mean? And it turns out, by the way, I was talking to a bunch of people who I thought were much better skiers than me about it. And they were like, oh, no, it took me 13 years or it took me four. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, so I'm actually like, right. You know, I was right there. But it was a lot of it was about like self-forgiveness and setting down the shame and the embarrassment. And also like my ski partner, Ryan, was like cheering me on every step of the, you know what I mean? It was really good to have somebody there. And I also don't do video review for a while. Like th certain things that like don't get any advice. I didn't take a lesson until I had learned almost all the tricks on my trick list. I didn't want anybody's voice in my head. I was we were doing like a follow the leader style learning, not much talking, keeping the prefrontal cortex really quiet. And just like Ryan would do something. If I had the trick, I would do what he did. If it was too scary for me, I would shift it down to something that I could do safely one inch at a time. And that was and that was what we did. And it when I did manage to pull stuff off and he never blew smoke up my ass. It was never like, you know, I never got an attaboy for for not doing something and try, like, you know, he'd be like, wow, you're willing to hit the ground pretty hard. That's impressive. Uh, and I was always very like grateful that he never like blew smoke up my ass, but that like, I had somebody there to notice and say, Hey, you, that's, that's real progress. Good job. And I didn't do the video review because you look terrible. You know what I mean? You look, you have an image of what park skiing looks like and it looks like a pro athlete park skiing. And like, that's not what it looks like on the front end and you can't, like you'll just crush your spirit. We didn't, when we were doing the experiment, we filmed everything, but we didn't show anybody any film until long after it was done. Cause we knew it would just like crush their soul. And the point was, it wasn't about that. It was creatively interpreting the mountain to maximize flow. Yeah. I can relate with this so much. I live near Whistler. I live in Squamish, BC and really technical mountain biking and I've taken a similar, even though I'm a pro rider, like I take a similar approach to always improving my technical skills and never settling. And that involves going back to the very basics of how to corner and taking videos and thinking you look a certain way and you don't. And you can have those feelings and be a pro and still like it, you have to be humble and you have to learn how to hold frustration and use it for a motivating factor instead of letting it stop you from trying. Two things on this one. One, um, Laird Hamilton said to me years ago um, that really changed my life as an athlete more than anything anybody's ever said. And I guess this story is in one of my books. It might be an Art of Impossible. Um, he had taken me out uh, on a jet ski for the very first time. And when I was a kid, one of my friend's brothers, older brother, put me on the back of a, of a dirt bike and just went showing off and like crashed. And I went into a tree head first and got a concussion ever since when I'm not like, I'm really scared to be on the back of anything that goes fast. It's really hard for me. And Laird's blazing across the ocean. And he had told me that even though I fell off at top speed, I'd just get the wind knocked out of me. And we got to like 50 miles an hour. And I was like, Laird, are you? I'm screaming. Are you sure? I'll just get the wind. He's like, yeah, yeah. And I jumped because I had to get it out of the way. I had to like feel that I wasn't going to die. And when he came around to uh, get me, he was laughing. And he pulled me out of the audience. He said, you too, huh? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, fear is something I felt my entire life. I've just had to do that to get through it. He's like, it's the most common emotion in my life. And Laird Hamilton at the time, back in the 90s, he was the widely acknowledged bravest, toughest dude on the planet. Like he was it. And here he was telling me that he's scared all the time. And I was like, oh my God, it's not just me. It's actually everyone. 
Because if this dude is scared all the time, we're all scared all the time doing this stuff. And that really like, because you spend time around pro athletes and you guys don't look scared. I twitch like a marionette. <laughs> you guys don't look scared. So like, it was great to hear. You know what I mean? I wanted to ask you to clarify something you said earlier for those of the listeners who haven't read your your previous work. You said flow takes care of learning. So I wanted to ask, how does flow take care of learning? So flow is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. It's any of those moments of rapt attention, total absorption. You're so focused on what you're doing, everything else just disappears and all of our skills, mental and physical, go through the roof. So that's flow if you haven't heard of it. When we're in flow, when you talk about flow is optimal performance or peak performance, it's how human beings are hardwired. So it's biologically in all of us. We're all wired to get into flow. comes built in and it amplifies a bunch of stuff, creativity, productivity, motivation, learning, et cetera. And learning is so in flow. One of the things that happens in the brain is the brain dumps five of the most potent kind of reward neurochemicals, but they're all performance enhancing neurochemicals in the brain at once. It's a very big cocktail. And a quick shorthand for how learning and memory work in the brain, the more neurochemicals that show up during an experience, better chance that experience will move from short-term holding into long-term storage. What neurochemicals are multi-tools, they do a bunch of different jobs, but one of the things their most important jobs is to tag experiences as important, save for later. Mm -hmm. So in flow because of this massive neurochemical dump and this is not uh our research this is research conducted by the u.s department of defense soldiers in flow will learn 240 to 500 percent faster than normal you can in other experiments we've taken like novice marksmen or archers or handgun shooters dropped them into flow and they can get to the expert level in 50 percent less time so flow is this massive amplification of learning and the feeling was if we can get people into flow just by being creative and using their bodies in new ways, right? Most people don't even know. They look at a train park, they see a big jump on a big knuckle, and they think, the only thing I can do here is hit that jump. And that's not true at all. You can use the knuckle, you can use the side, you can, there's a million things to do with these mounds of snow, not just what they're made for. And so use your body in new ways. That itself is a flow trigger. And once you're in the state, because the state amplifies motivation and productivity and learning and fast twitch muscle response and strength, and it deadens pain a little bit and does all these other things, you're a better athlete. And in fact, years ago, the very first flow hack I ever learned was from Glenn Plake, professional skier, you know, biggest name in, in extreme skiing back in the eighties and nineties. And uh, Glenn basically told me that you never want to do something risky and dangerous to get into flow you want to get into flow any other way you possibly can and then use the state to take the risk because your chances of not getting hurt are so much better so one of the other cardinal rules that we live by is you know one, one inch at a time unless you're in flow and then that's the only time you can push it a little bit because everything's jacked up and it's safer to do that and it you your feeling of fear is is, is lower i also this brings me to one other point that I think is really important with all this work in older, in anybody over 30, really. You have to get really good at what scientists call interoception, listening to the body's subtle internal signals. If you can't find the line between fear and too much fear, you shouldn't be doing this work. 
Because when you're feeling fear, little fear is good. Too much fear, you're going to crush performance and you're going to send yourself to the hospital. And it's really easy to do that. So you have to know where is that line? Where is one inch at a time, right? So, and, so and how do it. you know that? Trial and error and just, uh, what am I feeling? Okay, go out, try to perform. Did I do it? Did I not do it? And if, if and if like I'm feeling a certain thing and that leads to not doing it very well a couple times in a row, I'm like, okay, this is what too much fear actually feels like. And there's like, you just, it's just trial and error with your experimenting with your body. Um, I always like, so what, what here's the other thing I, I would say, if I'm just, this is the advice, this is what I did. How did I get good at things like interoception and whatever? I befriended a lot of female athletes, successful female athletes, because women are better than men biologically for a bunch of different reasons at interoception. And if you ask dudes, how did you push through the fear to skew that line? They're going to bro bra the answer. They're going to deny the emotions. Dude, I wasn't scared. You know, you're, or that stuff, or they're going to give you something that's not useful. But like, I got to know people like Rebecca Rush, Lindsay Dyer, Kristen Almer, really brilliant women who are not afraid of their emotions. And I asked them, what does it feel like? Where's that line? How do you do it? Like that, was, I talked to people who actually like would talk to me about their emotions and admit to having a lot of fear and help me strategize around is really like I built a brain trust because um, I'm really freak. I'm lucky and I get to, you know, meet people like that. And I built a brain trust of, of like basically top female athletes who I could ask questions to about emotions and feelings. And how did you deal with fear? Because I'm scared. I was scared all the time. And I couldn't ask the guys because they weren't giving me answers or they or they weren't feeling the emotion. Right. Like either they don't have it or they they were lying. And either way, it was useless to me. So I talked to a lot of women athletes is the other answer on that, honestly. Yeah. And more it might be annoying, but a more nuanced point that I wanted to to make and ask about is you said, like, how am I feeling? And a lot of times, like when you're approaching something challenging, you might feel a certain way and you might be thinking a certain way. So like feeling and thinking could be in separate categories. And in my example, I'll give it's like you might be doing something and you might feel scared, but you might think I need to execute these skills that I've learned in order to do that. Like what you were saying earlier about seeing the jump, I need to lean back so you can feel scared, but you can also think this is what these are the skills I need to execute. But if you feel like you can execute on those things that you're thinking, then maybe that could be a point of not trying it. That's, that was the other thing that I discovered with me is I can't if I'm trying to hold multiple thoughts in my head at once while I'm approaching something. I should back off almost immediately because I can there's I can only do one thing. I did miss may not be true for other athletes, but I can only be, I can only build on one piece of advice at a time. And if I'm trying to do two or three things, my brain is thinking two or three things as I'm approaching something, that's a sign that I'm overprocessed and I should I literally back I should back off because I'm not gonna be able I'm not gonna pull it off if and so I don't want to try it if it, you know, if it's the kind of thing that's gonna put me in the hospital if it goes wrong. I, if I'm dealing with multiple thoughts, I would I back off. Now, as I said, bad athlete. So like what applies to me might not apply to most people. Yeah, understanding that that optimal amount of fear, like you said, it's it's based on the individual and it requires trial and error. Um, so I wanted to move on to something that you said about coming back to aging and peak performance. And you said as people move into their 50s, they can index more on things like intelligence, creativity, empathy, and wisdom. Can you talk about that? Yeah, this is uh, Gene Cohn's research, who I think is the, go the actual godfather of peak performance aging. 
he's a he, he was a geriatric psychiatrist and uh was the first head of the national institute of aging and uh he ran a couple of, he is this guy who figured out that we shouldn't retire he was the first person to discover that but he he uh he realized there are as we start to enter our it happens it starts in our 40s but there's certain genes that only activate by experience and it as we enter our 50s there are actual shifts in how the brain processes information. The two hemispheres of the brain start talking to each other like never before, and the brain starts to recruit underutilized areas. And as a result, if we get it right, and there's there's a some stuff you have to do to get it right, we gain access to whole new levels of intelligence, abstract reasoning, analogical thinking, really like hard to teach difficult stuff. And creativity goes up, but it's not just creativity, it's divergent thinking, like outside the box, far flung, the hardest stuff to teach empathy and wisdom and wisdom is a distinct neurobiological trait and it's got it's as a bonus if you want to stave off cognitive decline alzheimer's and dementia lifelong learning it's you can't that's the only thing we've got right now and it works incredibly well but you need both expertise and wisdom and they're slightly different things and wisdom is something that starts to develop more naturally in our 50s because we start to be able to see things from part of this intelligence as we'd be able to our ego quiets down, we can start to see things from multiple perspectives. And we learn that like black and white thinking is sort of a folly of youth and everything is shades of gray and nuanced and blah, blah, blah. And so we learn all that stuff and it's based on actual neurobiological changes. You have to do certain things to unlock that and to really get it right. By the age 30, you actually have to have sort of solved the crisis of identity. You got to know who you are in the world. By 40, it's about match fit. So there's got to be a match between how you're spending your time and who you really are. By 50, you got to forgive those folks who have done you wrong and you got to forgive yourself. And without, and then in your 50s, you also have to engage in creative activities because it's, it's the engaging in creative activities that really sort of unlocks all this stuff in the brain and really takes you over the hump. So that's the progression. It also tells you something that's really important, which is peak performance aging starts young. It doesn't like we can rock till we drop, but like you're really looking at stuff. There's stuff you want to do in your 20s, in your 30s, in your 40s, your 50s. And I mean, certainly you can pick this stuff. There's research that shows you can even physical interventions in your late 80s can have a huge impact. Right. And you can do this. There's fun studies out of like Tufts where they started like women, 75 year old women on strength training programs who who hadn't been physically active in like 50 years some ridiculous amount and they their strength increased like 1200 percent in, in like a year kind of thing like the numbers are staggering what's really possible late in life is it's really interesting and and we keep learning more so it's you know this is the front end of a very cool revolution yeah i like that you're saying it's never too late to start even if you haven't found match fit and you're 50 or even if you're 80 and you haven't found self-forgiveness that you have to start And like I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of people as they age think it's just too late for me. And what you're saying is that it's it's never too late, but it's better if you start earlier. It is never too late. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's really never too late. Um, And, you know, there's some we now know the stuff health wise and nutrition wise and pollutant wise and what I like that you want to avoid an early child. You know what I mean? Like we, we, we have, there's recommendations for every 10 years at this point up through your eighties, people have really mapped it out um, in the past 25 years. We've got a pretty good picture of what you need to do. What's shocking to me about it is 
most of what you have to do or a lot of what you have to do is psychological. Like you can't, you, it, and the physical stuff, you really sort of, you don't have to train as hard as a professional athlete, but you have to train in the same way. In a sense, pro athletes really train their bodies. Like you can't have weak spots as you age because you're, it, you know, if there's, if there's any weakness in the chain, something's going to go wrong. So you really like, you got to, you know, you got to train all five categories of functional fitness. You got to train your prime movers. You got to train your stabilizers. You got to get rid of the old trauma patterns in your body. So the kinetic chain fires the way it shouldn't like all that complicated, you know, athlete stuff um, really starts to matter over 50. And one thing I will say about the physical stuff, the crazy one, the one where, where I was really blown away was VO2 max. Because when I was like the out of all the long slow rot theory, it didn't matter what you said to people, VO2 max starts falling off a cliff at 25 and by 50, you're, you're screwed. And it was written in stone and you couldn't tell anybody any different. And then they went out and started measuring the VO2 max of octogenarian triathletes. And they realized they had the VO2 max of like healthy 35 year olds, but they had started training VO2 max around in their fifties. So they had 30 years of, of work where like every week, a couple times a week, they were pushing, you know, into that upper aerobic threshold to really train VO2 max. You know, they were climbing hard hills or, or whatever you, whatever you want to do. But that's amazing. 88 years old and you've got the VO2 max of a 35-year-old? That's crazy. Nobody thought that was possible. Yeah, this comes back to the the mindset of not like you said, not wanting to go gently into the good night of embracing the challenges and doing the things that are uncomfortable, like pushing yourself to maximum, you know, aerobic capacity and learning new skills and being willing to fall down and get back up again and hold that space for frustration and embarrassment. If you want to keep using these skills. I will say the only time I want. So if you have bone density issues, right? Like if you fall, if you fall down and can break, deal with the bone density issues. And there's lots of like, there's I mean, weight vest hiking, bone density, lots of different nutrient supplements. You check your diet. Um, and there's whole clinics now where they, they pressurize bones equally, all the bones, and it massively increases bone density. That's the only time where I'm like, okay, you got to go slower than anybody <laughs> else, right? Because that's a, that's a real, if, if bone density is a real issue, interestingly, I will tell you, this is not my research. I wish I, and I wish I had known about it before we started Art of Impossible or I, uh, in our country. It turns out uh, uh, some Japanese longevity researchers were looking at what is the best activity for bone density and what's bad and things like that. Cause it's, this is the challenge in older adults. And they really think with athletes, it's the like, it's the deal breaker thing. We know, for example, the number one correlate for peak performance aging is leg strength. Strong legs matters more than anything both for physical and mental health. But I think you get a lot of bone density from training legs, but skiing turns out to be the very best activity for increasing bone density. I'm sure you love See, that. I, I had no idea. <laughs> it's, yeah, I was, I was blown. I was laughing so hard. It's because you're equal, like running is too much, right? You're, you're breaking down the bone. Swimming isn't good at all because you're not loading the bones at all. So it's actually a worthless activity from, from that perspective. It's a bad aging activity. But skiing, because you're using each side of your body equally and you're loading each side gently, I would also have to argue because 
mountain biking is roughly skiing with different hand position, hips forward, loading the body. So if you're if you're going side to side and you you know rhythmically, I, I I don't know if they looked at mountain biking, but the it's so similar to skiing motion wise that I would I, I bet it's really great for the same reason. For the couple of minutes we have left, I have kind of it's it's kind of a different question maybe, but using the wisdom and you know crystallized intelligence that you get as you get older, how do you define success in your life? That's interesting. I think I have a bunch of different answers to it. So when I think of what 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 does mastery mean to me, I, what what success in my life is that I is that I keep challenging myself and I keep getting better, and that my contribution and that doesn't mean a global. I mean that could be my contribution to my marriage or how I treat my dog. You know what I mean? My contribution continues to grow. Those are things that are really important to me. And when I think of like, what is mastery to me? I always think of it as like 360 degree creativity. I'm so good at this that whatever direction I choose to go with it, I can be, I can be great. Like that's so like, that's what I'm aiming for in sort of everything I do. I don't do a lot of things is the other thing. I've widowed my life down to like, I do very specific, you know, six or seven things and, and everything else is a no, because I want to be great at everything i do like you know i always say one of the reasons professional athletes like me is is like i've always said i want to be the greatest writer in the history of the universe and i know that's not a real award you don't get to be that thing but it doesn't change the fact that that's how competitive i actually am with myself and with my life and with other you know like i'm wired for that i'm actually wired for that in everything i do it's just that like I'm not going to be that kind of athlete. So like I, I can, I can compete at that level as a writer and I, and you, but it doesn't change the fact that that's how I approach everything I want to do. I want to, I want it to me, if you're not going to try to be great, why are you doing the thing? You said 360 degree creativity and, and mastery. And that sounded like it was compared to yourself. But then whenever we're talking about competition, you can be competitive with yourself, but you also can be competitive with others. And this is a question that I don't know if there's like an answer to, but I think about a lot lately is, you know, I want to be my best. I want to be the best. Where is the intersection there of of what is, I don't know if okay is the right word, but the intersection of self-competition versus competing with others and where mastery falls on that scale. So one of the things that's interesting is one of the arguments about what is flow and what it from an evolutionary perspective it is a signal that you've actually have skill mastery among its many things like when you drop into a flow state doing something it's usually because you've automatized six or seven different skills and they all came together at once and you're suddenly like it's a paradigm shift in your performance um it's a huge level up that's literally a sign of mastery so one of the things is most people don't realize that like you your body actually has a signal that means you're getting better at this thing. It's called flow. So that's that's what's happening. So one, feedback really matters and mastery. Like it's a thing. It's a real thing. And it feels a certain way and it produces certain psychological neurological changes. So I think of it that way. And I also, for me, the competition is always with myself. I don't, I've, I always say, compare yourself to the best in the world. Because why wouldn't you? You know what I mean? Like when I said I'd be a writer, I didn't care about my classmates. I wasn't competing my classmates. I wanted to be, beat Hemingway. I wanted to kill Thomas Pynchon, right? Like that's what I wanted to do. They were the best in the fucking world. What do I care about the guy sitting next to me? 
seriously. You're like, well, there's softwares in college in a writing class, really? Like, no, I'm competing with, you know, the best ever. So I, I and I like, cause I, most people don't think that way. They don't think they can compete at that level. So they never even try. Right. And I just, it never dawned on me that I couldn't, mm-hmm. I just, uh, right. And like, so I think that's important to realize that like, it doesn't matter where you are, you get to compete with whoever you want to compete with. But the competition is always, I have to be better today than I was yesterday. Because it doesn't matter like where I, be, I could kill Hemingway, but the only way I'm going to kill Hemingway is by being better today than I was yesterday and being better tomorrow, you know? And there's the most important thing, the hardest thing to learn, I think, and the most important thing is it's always crawl, walk, run for all of us in everything. Like there's no... And the difference between peak performers and everybody else, one of the biggest differences, peak performers know it's always crawl, walk, run. Everybody else comes into a problem and goes, you know, man, I'm not really the crawl type and I don't love walking. I speed walk. I want to find a speed walking shortcut into whatever it is. And they will waste three months, six months, eight months, like whatever, looking for a shortcut. And peak performers will go, I'm going to suck for a while. And the the other thing I always say is the thing that peak performers know is the order of the process, how it feels is always the same. I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. Oh, look, I don't suck as much. Right. And, and it's okay to inter- suck. <laughs> Pardon me? And it's okay to suck. It doesn't yeah, mean well, that you're not I, meant to do it. It's okay to suck. And the other thing is that's everybody. That's all of us. Nobody gets to escape the I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I, I don't suck. Now, there are certain things that we take to. I learned a mountain bike in my 40s, and I'd been skiing my whole life, and it was a hips forward stance, so I took to it very fast. And I had a really accelerated learning curve, whereas other sports, you know, I surfed for decades, and I, I'm an intermediate, and I'm, you know what I mean? And that's just what it is. And that wasn't the case with mountain biking, with downhill riding for me. So sometimes you get lucky, you find uh, you find something that matches like that, but most of the time you don't. And most of the really good stuff, the meaning comes from the stuff to me that means the most, that makes life satisfying, is the stuff that I spent 10 years learning how to do. Like that's the, like, you know, what am I proud of? I'm proud of the fact that I've been married for 17 years and it's been fucking hard. I'm proud of like books that took a decade or two decades to research. I'm proud of the fact that like when I started weight training, I was 119 pounds in my height and I got myself up to like 170 and it took a decade. I remember being five years into weight training and I was in a gym in San Francisco. I'm working out. I've literally been working out four times a week for five years. And some Arnold Schwarzenegger looking motherfucker (laughs) comes up to me and he like, punches me on the shoulder. He's like, stick with it, kid. You'll make progress eventually. And I was like, don't you know I've been doing this for five years? Don't you know where I started? Like, it was so funny. I was five years in and he literally thought it was like my first week in the gym and I was so mad. But one of the things that is great that you learn from, I learned from book writing more than I, and from weight training. I think sports is really good at teaching you this is like, the really good stuff takes a long time, right? Yeah. That's the stuff you love, the stuff that like, and everybody knows this, right? If you ask people, hey, think back in your life, what are the like, what are the things that matter the most to you? Nobody ever says, oh, the day I won the lottery. You don't hear those stories. You hear the like, 
five years of, of, of working nights as a taxi driver to put myself through film school to finally get that. Like, those are the stories you hear. Um, it's never the easy stuff. Yeah, it drives me nuts when people look at something and they say, oh, that looks like a lot of work. And they said, yeah, that's what that's where meaning comes from is the work. <laughs> that's the, one of the things. And you mentioned this at the start. And I'm so glad you saw it in the book, too. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book the way I did is I wanted people to see what it looks like on a day to day basis when you do just applied peak performance. Right. It's not really very fancy or very special. It's a lot of like routine. There's a, there's a checklist here. But all of it works like compound interest, right? So it's a little bit, a little bit. It doesn't feel like you're making any progress. That was the other thing. That's the other uh, answer to your question, I think is really important with the one inch at a time thing. Don't ever judge your progress because most of learning is subconscious. So you have no idea if you're learning or not. Your experience is I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck, I suck. But 98% of everything we learn is unconscious. So you literally cannot judge your progress by design that's something i've never heard before and i think that's yeah that's super insightful you're the, you're, you're terrible at it um even other people can't because you can't tell when the thing is gonna birth burst forth as whole when that pattern is gonna finally connect mm -hmm. nobody i mean you could look at people and go you're getting a little smoother a little braver there's stuff you can see but most of it is really and we know this i mean like we know this like you don't have to believe me we have look at your own experience and stuff you learn right like this is how brains learn and we lie to ourselves and want to believe it's going to happen a different way or like you know and, and it just doesn't which means you can get really really far by just understanding that like the experience is going to feel like horrible frustration and but by the way we have working memories we can only hold four ideas at once and if they're concepts we, and so like if you're trying to learn something and there's more than like four things you're trying to figure out at once your brain is going to be frustrated like period you can't like you've over you're over processed your act frustration is the natural result of that and that's part of the learning process if you want the subconscious to learn something you want to overload it you want that frustration that's actually a sign that you're moving in the right direction most people are like oh i'm so fucking frustrated i'm gonna stop i'm done with this no no that's what it's supposed to feel like. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to do. It just doesn't feel good. But stop demanding that it feels good and you'll make plenty of progress. I just wrote an article about that exact thing. <laughs> but anyway, we are unfortunately out of time. And I would love to just sit here and chat all day with you because there's so many fun things to talk about. Where can people find NAR Country and the rest of your work in the Flow Research Collective? NARcountry.com is the website. StephenCotler.com is me. And if the flowresearchcollective.com is the Flow Research Collective. And if you're interested in, in training at, with, with Flow Research Collective and the work we do there, and you just want to like free coaching consult, learn more about what we do, I can't believe we're doing this for people. But uh, if you go to getmoreflow.com, you can sign up for a free hour-long call with one of with one of our coaches who will just sort of see where you're at and see if uh, working with us is, is a good fit or not. But it's People seem to love it as a like free coaching, you know, psychological mind coaching call. So that that's there. For All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And personally, you know, thank you for all the work that you've done, because that's been a big impact in my life. And I'm excited for other people to read your books. Thank you, Sonia. It was really fun hanging out. Appreciate you.
I hope you enjoyed that episode with Stephen Kotler and got some great key takeaways about peak performance aging and that it's not all downhill from here. I also encourage you to pick up The Art of Impossible, one of Stephen's past books, which is a great read and it's one that I reference frequently on my bookshelf. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with a friend and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. That way it can help others find it as well. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you right back here next week.